What's up and welcome to Ask Father Josh, the podcast where I get to hear you out, listen to your heart and pray with whatever it is you send me. And after I spend time with what you send me, your questions, I try to answer them from the heart of the church and from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Here's the deal. Your life, my life, our lives can get really, really messy sometimes. And there's not always going to be that easy, fill in the blank, easy to go to Catholic answer to all of our life's problems. There's not always stuff that's black and white. There's a lot of gray. And whenever we encounter the gray, we get uncomfortable. And so the purpose of this show is for me to walk with you in those gray areas of life where it's really messy and where we're trying to discern what is God's plan for me right here, right now in this particular situation. I can't always promise you that my answers to your questions will be best for you, but I can assure you that I really do spend time praying with them and studying them in the church's teachings and trying to apply principles from the church's teachings to your situations. If I give you advice that's helpful, then I want to invite you to please chew on it, spend time with it. But if my advice is not helpful, please be free to reject it. You don't have to accept everything I say because guess what? I'm not perfect. I'm not infallible. And I'm likely to mess up every now and then. If that's the case, you can let me know and hit me up at askfatherjosh at essentialpress.com with your comments, your critiques, and your follow-ups on my questions that I answer on today's episode. Also, if you are a first-time listener, here's how the show goes for you. Uh, We're going to address three to five questions per episode dealing with everything from morality to justice to prayer, spirituality, apologetics, catechesis, evangelization, relationship advice, pretty much anything and everything under the sun. And, and then after that, you comment back at askfatherjosh at essentialpress.com. That's askfrjosh at essentialpress.com to let me know what you thought about the way I responded to the episode. Also, please don't forget to rate us and to review us on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the gift of the show. It's a gift. If it's a gift for you, if it's not a gift, then don't rate it and don't review it. <laughs> that way people won't find out about it. On today's show, we're going to discuss uh, a number of really, really great topics. We're going to discuss Catholic social justice, Catholic morality, and Catholic uh, spirituality. So on today's show, we're going to discuss institutional racism. We're also going to talk about the morality of donating organs and the morality of receiving cosmetic plastic surgery. And finally, we're going to address ecumenical Bible studies. Whenever we are invited to attend Bible studies that are put on and led by our brothers and sisters in Christ of different faith backgrounds. Before we jump into the show, let's, uh, let's talk about a glory story. So my glory story this week is super, super simple, but it was just something really cool that happened this past week. I was uh, I had a really great day of ministry on on Saturday this past week. A lot of sacraments. I had adoration and, and confession in the morning. Then I had Saturday morning mass. And after that, I had some more confessions. And then I had a baptism in the afternoon. And then later in the afternoon, I had another, more confessions, my anticipatory mass, and another baptism. It was just a sacramental day of ministry. Great day. But between my my last baptism in the afternoon and my my anticipatory mass or my confessions in the afternoon, I uh, I had like a little 30-minute break. And so I said, man, I'm just going to go chill with Jesus uh, because I'd already done my, my hour of time with the Blessed Sacrament, and uh, and I just I just wanted to go and like chill with him some more. I mean, he, he's my best friend. And so, you know, sometimes whenever you're with people you love, you just like to chill. It's like that song from the early 1990s from Guy. Just chill. And let's chill and let's settle down. 
That's what I want to do. Just me and you. Let's chill and let's chill, Jesus. And so me and Jesus were up in the chapel, and we were just chilling, hanging out, and uh, and it was good. And one of the greatest things that happened, and so here I am. I'm not trying to receive any like insights. I'm not going there for intercessory prayer. I wasn't going there to discern. I was just going there to just be with the love of my life, Jesus. And as we're hanging out together, he surprised me and he he infused me by his grace uh, with uh, new insights from a homily for that that afternoon, that evening's mass. And it just shocked me because I didn't go there looking to get something from him. I, I didn't want to use him for anything. I just I just wanted to be with him. And, and, and he did something for me that was, you know, beyond my wife's expectations or imagination. And he gave me this really awesome insight for the homily. And I was able to share that with my people that day during Mass and helped them out a lot because it came from him, clearly, uh, not from me. And it was a gift. So I was talking to one of my buddies about it. And I was like, dude, like, isn't it cool how Jesus does that? And he was like, yeah, like one of my buddies, he spends a lot of time. He's a priest before the Blessed Sacrament. And like God just always provides for him and his ministry and the Lord that's the same for me. You know, like we just prioritize more time with Jesus. He does the rest. Of, that's what Mother Teresa used to always stress in her ministry. She even said, it's better to spend time in prayer than to even do charitable works. Because the more time we spend in prayer, the more Christ will fill us up so that we can go out and do those charitable works well in, in, in union with, with him. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, one of his brothers asked him one time, he said, what's the greatest thing that we could ever do for, for Jesus? And St. Francis says, the greatest thing that we could ever do for Jesus and sit with him in the Blessed Sacrament. If you heard that thing dropped, that was my cell phone just dropped. Um, but he said the greatest thing that we could ever do for, for Jesus is spend time with him in the Blessed Sacrament. And St. Francis would even, he would walk through the streets of Assisi, and he would find empty churches, and he would go and sit with Jesus in uh, the tabernacle just to be near the Lord, to keep him company. And uh, one time Jesus said to the, the lay mystic, the alleged lay mystic, hashtag, Wendy Williams, she always is alleged. Uh, but alleged, there was allegedly this mystic in the 1940s. Her name was Gabrielle Bosis. And Jesus would speak to her. And, uh, and one time he said something like this to her. I'm going to say something like this because I don't remember exactly what he said. I don't have the book in front of me. But something like this. He said that uh, he appreciates it whenever she would, our people would go and visit him in um, churches that um, the people weren't going there to see the church. Like, you know, sometimes we go to a church that's really beautiful. There's a lot of basilicas and shrines that are just gorgeous. And we go there and we, like, look at the artwork and we look at things more than we look at Jesus. I mean, like, whenever I was in the Holy Land on a pilgrimage one time, one of the things that broke my heart was I would notice how people would walk in these different areas where, you know, Christ, like, literally walked 2,000 years ago. And they would walk right past the tabernacle. And they would be like, oh, my gosh, this is where, you know, this is where the Blessed Mother went to door mission. Or this is where she, whatever. And this is where this happened. Uh, and all these different sites, most of them have the, the Blessed Sacrament there in the tabernacle. And, and people would, like, legit just, like, walk right past the Lord and not even acknowledge him. They would look at these really cool things and really cool images and, and places, but not Jesus. And I was like, dude. Like, don't ignore Jesus. Like, Jesus Christ is right there. Like, go and at least, like, genuflect or wink at him or something. 
Like do something. And so uh and so he allegedly said to this lay mystic, hey, I like it when people come and visit me for me and not for the beautiful church I'm in. Now, what is he not saying? I don't think he's saying he does not want us to have beautiful churches and beautiful shrines dedicated to him and because I mean I, clearly beautiful churches enable us to worship him better. Like they, they draw us to prayer, they draw us to intimacy. And we all know that we've seen some ugly churches in our life. Like, have you ever walked into a church and it looks like looks like Walmart? You're like, oh my gosh, is this even a church? Right? And those places are very difficult to pray, but Jesus Christ is probably still there. Yeah, he's definitely still there. So we still got to go and uh, visit him and, and just chill with the Lord. Uh, and so one of the greatest things that we could do, y'all, is chill with the Lord. And when we do that, he will fill us up beyond our greatest imaginations and expectations. So if you haven't just chilled with Jesus lately, then I want to invite you to prioritize just hanging out with Jesus sometime this week. And, uh, and he will do the rest. Everything else will follow, but give him his time first and foremost. On to today's show now. Before we jump into our topics for today, I have some feedback from a previous show. Uh, this is a comment on the show we did on homosexuality. So this is what George writes. George says, I want to thank you for your week's podcast um, and how will you explain the issue of same-sex attraction. I experienced same-sex attraction and have been, by the grace of God, trying to live out chastity. Praise God. Uh, thank you for highlighting that we are people who need to be accepted. Yes, you do. Where we are at and we have a saintly calling. Yes, you do. To live out chastity, which is not easy necessarily. That's true. I'm a member of the Courage Apostolate. And I'm not sure if you want to mention the apostolate in your podcast. Uh, you know what, George? As a matter of fact, I do want to mention this apostolate in my podcast. And I meant to do it on that episode and I forgot and I kind of regretted it. And so I'm grateful that you sent this email. So George says this, also, it may be a good idea to suggest to your listener to check out the Encourage Apostolate if a local chapter is available where she is at geographically. As you may already know, Courage is an apostolate for members who experience same-sex attraction, and Encourage is an apostolate with Encourage for families and friends of those who experience same-sex attraction. Sorry, I've already forgotten the name of the listener, but she is the grandmother who wrote you to ask about how she wants to love her grandchild unconditionally. Yeah, George, great. Uh, Courage Apostolate, y'all, and Encourage are two great, great uh, apostolates that help accompany people and becoming saints in their walk toward eternity, particularly people who experience same-sex attraction because God is calling all of us to be saints, um, and especially those um, who experience same-sex attraction. They're called to be great saints as well, and in fact, there probably already are thousands upon thousands of saints in heaven um, who have experienced same-sex attraction while on earth. And so this apostolate is just a gift to us and to the kingdom of God. They have a great documentary that came out a couple years ago called The Desires of the Everlasting Hills. I think that's what it's called. And uh, you should definitely get that if you've never seen it. Watch it. It's a tearjerker, but it's a beautiful film that will just inspire you to want to accompany our brothers and sisters in their walk toward eternity. All right. On to today's show. My first question is about social justice, institutional racism. Mary wrote this, at what point are we to speak up against institutional racism? Where is the line between politics and church if we are to treat our brothers as we want to be treated? Great question, Mary, right? A lot of people sometimes wonder, like, where are we getting too political? I mean, I think clearly the only thing we don't do as, as a church is endorse particular candidates. But, like, we're called to enter into the realm of politics, right? We're called to bring the kingdom there because otherwise, if we don't bring the kingdom of God, 
and the church's teachings into the political realm, into the morality realm, into the humanitarian realm, then a lot of laws are going to be established that are going to um, break down the body of Christ and try to tear apart the body of Christ and divide the body of Christ. And in fact, that is what has happened in, in our nation's history in America. Um, because Catholics did not infuse the culture with our faith and with the gift of Jesus, laws have been set up in this nation, in America's nation, and it's our history, it's facts, um, that have just completely broken the heart of Jesus, have hurt the heart of Jesus because we've tried to separate our faith from entering the workplace, from entering our neighborhoods, from entering the realms of the ways in which we um, enter the polls, right? Um, letters to our senators and our presidents and everybody else. So um, we're definitely supposed to be um, men and women who bring our faith into the world to sanctify the world. We do not separate uh, the, the two in that way. Um, so what's institutional racism and how has that been used to um, really hurt the heart of Jesus um, and divide the body of Christ? Well, I think we got to start with Jesus. Jesus Christ in my absolute favorite gospel, John chapter 17, he prayed the priestly prayer. And in his priestly prayer, he said, Father, I desire that they be one as we are one. So one of the cool things about John 17 is that Jesus Christ allows us to hear his, his, his prayer to the Father. I mean, all throughout the Bible, Jesus went away to go pray. But very rarely do we get a glimpse of what his prayer to the Father actually sounded like, what it was like. And so in this gospel, he, he allows us to hear his prayer. So this, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a huge deal. I mean, imagine if you got to hear Padre Pio or like Pope John Paul II pray uh, in his chapel before the Blessed Sacrament, like you would be like, man, wow, like that's a beautiful prayer. But well, this is God. This is better than Padre Pio, better than John Paul. This is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so here he is praying to the Father, and in his prayer, he, he expresses his desire for unity. And so if Jesus Christ desires unity, then what does the Antichrist desire? What does the devil desire? The devil, Satan, Lucifer, demons desire disunity in the body of Christ. The devil desires to um, divide, to divide the body of Christ. And one of the ways that Satan has successfully divided the body of Christ and has fostered disunity uh, in the church of America has been through institutional racism. Uh, this was clearly, clearly manifested in slavery, right, which was the law of the land. Institutional racism is what, let's define it real quick, that way we're all on the same page. Institutional racism is the ways in which uh, practices and policies, policies are written rules, laws, practices are unwritten uh, rules, uh, ways in which practices and policies accommodate and give access to some people based on the color of their skin and alienate, discriminate, and oppress other people for no other reason than because of the color of their skin. This is clearly what has happened in slavery. Slavery lasted for hundreds of years. Whenever slavery ended, we went to the Reconstruction period very shortly, and then after that, we uh, went into the Jim Crow laws. Laws, again, these are laws, just like slavery was the law of the land. Jim Crow laws then came out and said that black people could not eat, sleep, work, play, and pray in the same place as white people. And if they did, they would be fined, they would be sent to jail. And that lasted until, guess when? The 1960s. Then finally, the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, uh, those laws were changed. However, a lot of people think, well, that's whenever the institution of, of racism ended, but it actually did not. 
uh, indirect ra institutional racism still exists to today. So how, again, through practices and policies um, that accommodate and give access to some people and and oppress, alienate, and discriminate against other people for no other reason than because of the color of their skin. I've experienced this all throughout my life. But whenever we talk about this, some commentators uh, would like to say things like, well, that doesn't really exist. That's just the liberal media. Um, that's just simply, that's just not true. As, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to be aware of this reality. And I'm going to give you some concrete examples of how you can um, clearly articulate institutional racism um, to our peers today. Here's an example of institutional racist practice. Uh, and I'm going to give you also ways that we can uh, be used by Christ to, as a church to collaborate together with each other and transform it. An institutional racist practice um, that uh, went on recently, that was transformed recently because of an archbishop of the Catholic Church who's completely orthodox, uh, spoke out against it, was this. Um, there's a country club. Uh, there was a country club in, uh, in Metairie uh, that for years, for years would not allow blacks to be members, right? Anyone can like send an application, but they would never allow a black person to be a member. And I'm not talking about the 60s and the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. I'm talking about the 2000s. Like we are living in the 2000s. This is the 2000s that this was going on. And imagine how much it hurt African-American and black parishioners whenever their pastors and their different organizations and institutions in their church parish would host events at this particular country club. Whenever they knew, like they're like, look, I'm active in my parish, I'm tithing in my church, and my, my church, my brothers and sisters are going to support an organization that does not allow me to be a member of it. It caused so much division in so many churches. And so members of these churches went to the archbishop. They, they went to Archbishop Hughes at the time, who is the Archbishop of New Orleans, and, and they expressed their pain to him. And he, like a wise man, listened to them. And he listened well. And when he heard their hearts, he decided to check into its reality. And then he found out it was true. And he wrote a pastoral letter against racism. And one of the things he said in that pastoral letter was, Catholic organizations and institutions and church parishes and schools cannot ever participate and host any events at organizations and institutions that do not allow diverse membership. But whenever he said this, all of a sudden, uh, it, it hit the Metairie Country Club where it hurt, and the, the pocket, and the wallet, the money, the almighty dollar. And so guess what they did? They changed their practice of not allowing blacks to be members. Right? They changed their practice. This is the church spoke up against this form of racism which happens all over the nation. I mean, I cannot tell you how many country clubs in our nation still to this day do not allow black members or other like Latino members or, or Asian members, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Um, and that's not okay for Catholics to participate in these institutions if they do not allow this. Like we are supporting them with our money if we are, are members of these organizations and that it's not okay. It's hurting the body of Christ. So, um, what can you do if there is a country club in your area? Well, give them a call and find out. Some country clubs do allow diverse membership. Many do, but many don't. So simply call them and ask them, hey, do you allow diverse membership? And if so, do you have any members that are of a different background? Because that can kind of be the, the, the giveaway if they really do allow diverse membership, um, if they actually have members in their country clubs that are, you know, Hispanic and black and whatever. And so 
Call them and find out. And if they don't, if they don't, then, then let them know, all right, look, I would like for you to be changed from within. And if they refuse to be changed from within, then pull your money, right? Pull your money out. Don't support it. Uh, it's that easy. That's how we can transform these broken practices. But what about policies, written rules? Those are a little bit more difficult to find um, because it's easier to, to you know, to clearly um, uh, get those dealt with in lawsuits, but they still do exist. Um, one of the most common places that policies, institutional racist policies exist currently in our nation is in our school system. Uh, a lot of our schools have handbook policies, which we should have, but in the handbook policies, they have rules that uh, accommodate uh, white people and, and discriminate against black people, particularly with regards to hair. Um, a lot of uh, black people, um, th their hair grows a certain way, and some of the policies that are written in many of our student handbooks in many of our schools, including our Catholic schools, say things like uh, they, you cannot have um, a fro if you come to this school. You cannot have braids, et cetera, et cetera, where if you are a, a black female and your hair grows a certain way, um, then like natural um, and what might be natural to you might be if it grows out, it might grow out into a fro and you might say, OK, I can either, you know, like shape this up a little bit or I can get braids. But the school's policy is in order for them to go there, they either have to have a clearly like a shaved head or they have to perm their hair um, if their hair grows out naturally in that particular way. Well, that's pretty much saying to them, you have to um, conform to this particular um, European model if you want to come to our school. And so a lot of black girls then don't go to Catholic schools because of this, because they see this policy that says that um, you're, you're going to not accommodate me in the way that my hair naturally grows. So what does that do that keeps them away from the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist? How many black people in our nation can be closer to the Eucharist, which the Eucharist is where the saints are formed? Look at the church's history. The Eucharist is where the saints have been formed throughout the years in the church's history. And they feel like they're being discriminated against. Well, they're not going to go there. Or if they do go there and they do braid their hair or if they do grow their hair out naturally, they get written up and expelled. That's a record on their, you know, whatever. So uh, this has happened to people in my own family. Not cool. Well, guess what happened in a, in a high school recently in my community? The principal listened to the black students in her school who were crying to her about how this policy was affecting them. And she invited them to sit at the table with her and their parents and rewrite the student handbook policy so that it would accommodate them and be inclusive to them. You know how much healing this brought? All because this principal listened to them and she changed the policy. She changed the rule. Sometimes we allow broken policies to exist and we say, what's the rule? Well, change the rule. We're not Jesus. These rules aren't perfect. These rules can always be reformed to be better and better. And that's what she did. So other thing that I would encourage you to do is to uh, check your handbook policies in your schools, in your Catholic schools, in your public schools, and make sure that they are accommodating um, uh, everyone and, and not just one group of people and giving access to one group of people, where, whereas they can be discriminating. And, and a lot of these handbook policies were written by people years ago, and so like the current principals don't even know uh, how they're affecting their students. And so I wouldn't go off and be like, oh, man, my principal is a terrible person because the principal probably did not write that handbook policy in the first place. So those are some of the ways in which uh, we can concretely uh, address institutional racism, see how it affects the body of Christ, causes division and ways that we can address it. And we should address it because it's affecting the body of Jesus, the Christ. So speaking about John 17 and God is our unity. Our next question is about ecumenical Bible studies. Jan writes this, Jan, I like that name, G-N or Jean. Maybe your name is Jean. I can't tell the way you spell it. It's kind of cool. So Jan writes this or Jean. 
writes this. My friend invited me to a Bible study at her church. They are Baptists. Is there anything wrong? Should I attend? Uh, so I would say uh, I have attended uh, many Bible studies, Protestant-led Bible studies, Catholic-led Bible studies throughout my walk toward eternity. And I mean, one of the cool things about Bible studies um, or praise and worship events or service opportunities is it can help us to enter into intentional relationships with our brothers and sisters who are also members of the body of Christ, um, but who um, have some differences than us. But I think that we can always learn something from them. They can learn something from us. So it could be potentially a good thing. And I've had really good experiences with some Bible studies. I just think it's really good to, to DTR. What I mean when I say DTR, I mean define the relationship right before you get into it. Define the relationship with the person who's leading the Bible study. Like what is their intention with this Bible study? Is it to convert you? Because I've been to some Bible studies. Um, there was one I went in the past whenever I just came back to the Catholic Church. Because as many of you know, I left the church for years, came back to the Catholic Church, went to a... a a non-denominational Bible study, and the Bible study leader was trying to like proselytize and do was like constantly taking shots at the Catholic faith. He was like saying that we were the whore of Babylon, and he was saying a lot of things that were not true about the Catholic Church. And at that time, I wasn't able to defend my faith well. I would try to defend it, but I did not know my faith well enough. I did not know the scriptures well enough to be able to 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 defend the church that Jesus Christ founded two thousand years ago. And so it was a real messy situation for me, and it wasn't a good thing. I'll say it became good because it made me refine my, my understanding of the church and the teachings of the, the Bible. But at the time, it was, it was just very uh, unnecessarily uh, challenging to my, my time of intimacy with Jesus. So I, I would say DTR, define the relationship with the person in the Bible study, what's their intention. If it's like a topical Bible study on Moses or David or something like that, that could be cool. But we, we have to remember that there might be different interpretations of certain New Testament scriptures as well. That could, um, if you don't know the, the the teachings of the church, and if you don't understand our theology, um, it could potentially um, be dangerous, but it could also be a really beautiful thing. If you do know the teachings well, you can share the way that we understand this particular passage. You can listen to them and hear why and how they uh, understand that, interpret that particular passage, and it could be a beautiful experience for you and for them. So it just kind of depends on where you are at right now in your walk with Jesus. Um, it could be something beautiful that can bring the body of Christ together. Remember, Jesus Christ desires unity. He does not want I'm just going to say it. God does not desire to have a bunch of different communities walking around. Like he wants one bride, one church, straight up. And if you think that God wants all this division in the body of Christ, like you are tripping. He does, that is not a good thing. Like I don't get why people celebrate. Like uh, I guess, what was it? Uh, a year ago, we celebrated the anniversary of Martin Luther's revolt. Like that, why are you celebrating division in the body of Christ? Not cool, no bueno. Um, so uh, we, we don't want to celebrate division. Remember, God wants unity. Division is not of God. Uh, disunity is not of Christ. He wants all these different communities of believers to come together. Um, and so Bible studies can be a way to bring us together, uh, but it also just depends on where you're at if you're ready to enter into an ecumenical Bible study, if that helps you in your walk right now with your friend who invited you to their Bible study. So what do y'all think? Do y'all have any additional advice for Gian? Do you have any additional advice for Mary? Write me at askfatherjosh at ascensionpress.com and let me know. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into our final two questions. Reading the Bible is something we as Catholics know we should do. But let's be honest, it can be kind of complicated. Even though it's a complete story, the Bible isn't really one book. It's more like a library, with dozens of books and dozens of genres. There's poetry, prophecy, and prose. 
There are apocalypses and revelations, historical accounts and allegories. No wonder it's difficult to keep a finger on the story of God's love and plan of salvation for his people, the thread that keeps all of it together. If you're wishing there was a simple guide to help you tie all of this together, then you're just like Jeff Cavins and Tim Gray. That's why they wrote the book, Walking with God. Walking with God is a single book that traces the story that ties the Bible together. It helps you to understand the big picture of the Bible. If you're looking to read more of the Bible, Walking with God will help you do it with confidence, peace, and clarity. You can find out more and order Walking with God on ascensionpress.com or on Amazon. And we're back. Just a quick reminder, you can send me your questions at askfatherjosh at ascensionpress.com. If you're feeling fancy, record a voice note. We can send it to me as well. We can play it on the show. And also, please rate and review us on iTunes to help other people find out about the gift of the show. Our next question is dealing with Catholic morality. Jessica writes this. I'm curious about how the church feels about being an organ donor. I've struggled with this for many years, and I recently decided it was the right decision for me to sign up to become one. Great question, Jessica. So the Catholic Church teaches that organ donation is a praiseworthy thing um, to do, but but under certain ethical parameters. So, for instance, if you are alive and you intend to donate one of your organs, uh, then you can donate uh, an organ insofar <laughs> as you would not be putting yourself in the danger like death of death, right? So, like for me, I know a lot of people they they donate their kidneys if somebody needs a kidney transplant. Like most of humanity has two kidneys so they could do that i was actually born with just one kidney so i could not give that organ my kidney because it's all i got it's all i got we all we got and so anyways uh so that would not be a good thing for me to do that so if you are a living organ donor just make sure it's not going to affect the your body because your body is also the body of christ in that negative way also on the other hand donating organs from someone who's already dead can also be a good thing, provided that your remains are treated with reverence um, and the person you are actually, in fact, dead, right? Sometimes, in fact, potentially in history, there have been cases where the person is actually still living whenever the doctors try to take the organs out of them to give them to someone else. Well, that's, that's in fact, that sounds like it's killing the person. So we want to make sure that the person is actually dead so like if you're in a coma could you imagine being in a coma and all of a sudden like you wake up from a coma because people do that uh and the doctor's like doing surgery on you taking your stuff and you're like what you doing bro give me my stuff back <laughs> so yeah it could be a good thing it could and then it could not be a good thing depending on the circumstance and finally our last question is about plastic surgery. Sarah writes this. Sarah, man, there's a lot of Sarahs out there. I've, I've had so many questions coming from Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah is your first name. So Sarah says this. My question is on the topic of plastic surgery. What does the Catholic Church teach about both permanent surgeries, i.e., uh, boob jobs and temporary ones, Botox or lip injections? Does it depend on the surgery and intent? For example, what if someone wants Botox to smooth fine lines versus someone who wants to get a breast lift after having children? On one hand, I understand that it's altering the image and likeness of that God created us to be. However, if it makes you feel more confident and you're able to financially afford it, what's the harm? Okay, 
Great question, Sarah. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is a question I have never thought about once in my life. And so I, the past week I've been praying with it. I've been doing some research and studying. And I'm going to share with you some principles um, because the Catholic Church does not have an official teaching on the morality of cosmetic surgery in general. But we have a lot of principles that can be applied to help you discern what to do. But before I get into those principles, and I just want to say this too, is a lot of times I think a lot of us want the church to have an answer of like, of like a black and white answer and everything. And, and the church doesn't, right? I remember Jesus Christ, the God, God gave us 10 commandments. He didn't give us a thousand commandments. And so that there's a lot of room for freedom in here insofar as we apply those 10 commandments and the principles that flow from them um, to our, our circumstances in life. So there's not always going to be a teaching on a particular topic, but there are principles that should uh, definitely influence the way that we go about making all of our life's decisions. So with that being said, first of all, I want to address something you said. I understand that it's altering the image likeness that God created us to be. Um, not necessarily. So, I mean, it could. I mean, yeah, actually, it could if you did certain things. But remember, the image and likeness of God is the fact that you're created with uh, a free will and you're created with, with reason to, to, to do that which is best. So it's not necessarily like your body is the image that God looks like or something like that, right? Um, so with that being said, though, again, the Catholic Church does not have an official teaching on the morality of cosmetic surgery for non-medical therapeutic purposes like Botox or breast augmentations. What we do know is that plastic surgery can be a really, really good thing for people who've experienced deformities because of accidents or, or because of illnesses that they may have experienced throughout their life or because they were born with particular defects. And these surgeries can help people thrive, not only physically, um, but psychologically as well. There are physical benefits. There can be psychological benefits as well to uh, persons who receive plastic surgery because of, of those things. Um, and the surgery could be good and justifiable insofar as they do not, remember this is the, the but, the insofar, as they do not do greater harm to the person who's receiving them. Um, in cases where one desires that plastic surgery, like a breast augmentation after the birth of children or temporary procedures like Botox to enhance one's appearance, those procedures, like when we apply principles, those procedures can also potentially be justifiable as well. Uh, but they can also be bad for us, depending on a few circumstances, depending on some principles that I want to go over with you right now. Uh, the three principles that I want to say we should pay attention to are the motivation, uh, the the financial, the cost, um, and also the risk, the potential risk that are involved. Motivation. Uh, Sarah, if, if the motivation is to enhance one's appearance, to psychologically like feel better about oneself, like psychologically, because I don't, everyone remember, not everyone's the same person. So we all deal with our, our, our psyche, psyche in different ways. So if, if it could be psychologically beneficial for a person to receive some kind of plastic surgery um, or physically beneficial because of the health things that go on with, with our bodies over the years. Uh, yeah, it could be potentially justifiable, right? So it could, it could, right, be whatever. But at the same time, if my motivation is vanity, which is a vice, if my motivation is pride, which is a deadly sin, if my motivation is envy of other people, if my motivation is lust and wanting other people to objectify my body or whatever, uh, then I would say it's, it's, it would not be a good thing. So just check the intention, check the motivation first and foremost of why do I want this? Is this a psychological benefit, which I think should be discerned with a counselor, should be discerned after a lot of time praying about this, right, and discerning this. Um, is it a physical benefit to me or is this something else? So discern the intention. Number two, think about the cost. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never 
had Botox done, uh, clearly. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a priest and a guy. I, mean, I don't know. Do guys get Botox too? Maybe they do. If, you've, if you're a guy and you got Botox, hashtag, I ain't judging you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I read and I read in my studies this past week that it can be uh, cost a lot of money. Um, especially if you have to get it every month or something like that. And so just, just think about the body of Christ real quick with me here. Like if I can, if I'm doing this every month, how much of my money am I also sharing with other members of the body of Christ who are suffering in the world? Because we are one body and we're called to be concerned about every person's needs. And so can I justify doing this every single month whenever I am not giving to other members of the body of Christ. But if I am given to other members of the body of Christ, then okay, uh, and the cost isn't that big of a deal to me, uh, then I would say, look at the risk. What am I putting into my body? What kind of toxins am I putting into my body? Are these toxins, if they're toxins, I mean, I really don't know what Botox entails, are, are the different surges that I have in my body, are they harmful to me and to my person? Because I am the body of Christ. And so I have to reverence the body of Christ at all times in me. And so I would say, Keep these three principles in mind, the motivation, intention, the, uh, the cost, the financial, uh, and the risk that are involved. And, and then again, it, it could be justifiable. And, and at other times, if it's, if it's not, I mean, if it's motivated by a vice um, or if it's just not fiscally responsible with regards to our needs to be accountable to the entire body of Christ, to God, to the church, uh, then I would say we might want to just hold off on that as well. So uh, there is no black and white. Well, there actually are times where it's black and white, and we can get into that. Uh, but when it comes to if you're following these principles, again, there is a potential for it to be justifiable. There's a potential for it to not be justifiable, depending on those principles and how they're applied to the circumstance. Hopefully that was helpful. I pray it was. And again, here's the thing. I could be wrong as well. Why do I say that? Because if the church were to ever come out with like a teaching on this, uh, then I would submit to whatever the church's teaching on this would be, clearly. But right now, I think it's it's one of those things where we're applying principles and we come up with different things depending on the way we apply those principles. So uh, I'm a son of the church, so hashtag don't call me a heretic. Uh, and if you do, then God bless you. I pray a little humility for you. Uh, so that's our show today. Let's look at some universal principles that we can uh, uh, take from today's topics. Uh, the universal point that can be drawn from from institutional racism is that we are the body of Christ. And, and as we've seen in the case with Archbishop Hughes and that principal of that high school, we have power whenever we listen to our brothers and sisters who are different from us. And whenever, in, in order to listen, we really need to fast from talking so we can really listen. And whenever we pray with what they've shared and then collaborate with them and invite them to sit at the table with us and like learn from them, we can really transform broken practices that are still going on. And again, I can I can literally do every show from here on out the rest of my life. I can name a concrete example of institutional racism that's manifested in practices all over this country. I have uh, some stuff coming out in a couple of years about this. I mean, literally like all over the place, but we will only know about these practices when we really sit back and listen and then collaborate with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to transform, to transform these broken practices and policies so that they can manifest more clearly the kingdom of God. When it comes to Bible studies, remember Jesus Christ desires all of us to be one. And so just to find that relationship, to find what kind of Bible study is it going to be? Is it going to be one that's going to be uh, a Bible study that's just more about encountering Jesus and community together, or is it going to be a topical Bible study that could be helpful or could be harmful, depending on 
um, who's leading the Bible study and what their intentions are. DTR, define their relationship. And when it comes to organ donation, again, could be good, could be bad, depending on those circumstances that we applied uh, to uh, the topic in today's episode. And when it comes to, to plastic surgery, cosmetic plastic surgery, just use principles. Use principles of intention, motivation, of cost, of risk that are involved to help you to discern and always take it to Jesus in prayer, to counseling, and potentially even a spiritual direction as you continue to discern how is God calling me to be a saint uh, for the kingdom of heaven, for my generation. So hopefully this this show was helpful. Uh, you, sh- you can send me questions and comments and feedback at AskFatherJosh at EssentialPress.com. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, ooh, we love you so much. And you are so good to us, and you surprise us, and we just want to be docile to your Holy Spirit. And we just want to do only what your Holy Spirit wants us to do. We want to only think and speak and act the way that your Spirit desires for us to to do that. We want your Spirit to just pray in and through us, Lord. So we open ourselves up, Father, to your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, so that we can perfectly uh, imitate him in our walk toward becoming saints in the kingdom of heaven. Give us the grace to always, to always, to always lean into you, to prioritize prayer so that we can always, always walk in a posture that is pleasing to you, Father. Everything we do, we want to glorify you. We ask this prayer, Father God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.